guys, it's Karen. Stephen Briley invited us to moderate his Q&A at the Pennsylvania Horse World Expo the other weekend. We got a lot of great questions from the audience members as well as our Facebook friends. We had a great time hearing Stephen's answers and picking the brain of an Olympic and Pan Am medalist. We hope you enjoyed this bonus episode and we'll be releasing a video of this on the Major League Eventing YouTube channel. So be on a lookout for that as well. Cheers. Uh, so welcome everybody, thanks for coming out. Um, just to make sure you know where you are, I am Stephen Bradley and we are going to do some discussion this morning on working through the winter, especially when you don't have an indoor facility or you have uh, severe time restraints and the days are quite short. And so we're going to talk about that and dealing with that for those of us who don't have indoors and for like the adult amateurs who have jobs and have to find other ways to be creative in their training process with the uh, training and the fitness program with their horses during the course of the winter. So I have Rob and Karen Bowersox here from Major League Eventing. They have a radio show, radio podcast that I don't know if everybody's heard, but very informative news and, and interview top riders all over the country and um, a really, really interesting podcast that I think is worth looking into. They're going to help me today because by myself I'm very boring and I'm not very funny. So we're using them to help be a little bit more entertaining and help out. And we've got a little bit of a question and answer discussion, if you will, that people who have heard the podcast and a lot of people who know me have sent in questions to Karen. And so we're going to use each other and bounce off of each other back and forth that way. As we go, if anybody of you guys have questions that you want to interject, um, or if you want to have a question about something that we're talking about, please feel free to just raise your hand or stand up and ask. Don't be shy. Okay? So with that, I think Karen, we'll get started. All right. Hi, guys. So our first question uh, is from Kate Cohen. Uh, she says, hi, Stephen. Hope you're enjoying Ocala. He did come up from Ocala to this uh, beautiful cold weather we're having. <laughs> Uh, she says, I listened to your interview on the Major League Eventing podcast this morning, and she says that I love that you are so into cooking. <laughs> He's a very good cook. Um, when you do stay at home in the colder months, what do you prioritize for fitness when it's so hard to ride outside and do all-day turnout? And also, how do you keep your horses mentally and physically fit through the winter months? So, a very, very good question. Um, I'm very lucky. I'm based in Virginia. The farm that I am at does not have an indoor. It does have an outdoor ring. And I do have horses that are there for the winter. I have a few horses that I have taken to Florida. And so I'm very fortunate enough to have that opportunity to go and to train down there. And I've left a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful small group of people at home to take care of the horses at home. So we do have to deal with that on some level ourselves. Uh, and sidebar, if any of you cook and like to cook, and I have found it works really well, but if you're a little bit slow getting things out and you keep people drinking while you're cooking, <laughs> when it finally comes out, they're really happy and whatever you've cooked is really good. No hors d'oeuvres, exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, it is very, uh, you have to be very imaginative and you have to, you know, keep into aspect that 
there are going to be weeks that it, the, the, the temperature drops and it might not even get out of the teens and it would be unhealthy to ride the horses. And at that point, the horses would have to be off. I always try and get the horses out, even if it's just for a few hours during the day. The one exception would be during ice storms when we've got really bad ice. Um, then it's a little bit dangerous for the horses, but that's few and far between. For me, the horses just need to get out and move around. I don't like it when they stand around in the stalls and don't get to just stretch their legs and move around and just eat some sort of hay that you've thrown out in the paddock and just move their legs. And I find that that's when we start to see a lot more in the way of colics. And that is a big concern of mine when the horses get to the point where they have to stand in the stalls for a few days at a time. So a big part of that time when we do that is my horses get a brand mash every night to try and keep things moving. And even in the cold months, even if they are getting out for a few hours during the day, we brand mash every night to keep things moving and hopefully avoid colic situations. But in more specifically to answer Kate's question, I think that you have to know going into the winter there are going to be some days that you simply can't ride. The temperature is going to be too cold, the ring is going to be frozen, it doesn't thaw out, and we're very lucky where we are that we have gravel roads and on our farm we have macadam roads and we just get out and walk on the roads. And if we are lucky enough to get to do a couple days in the ring, we go out and walk on the roads and we just get the horses out of the ring, whatever it takes. And sometimes it might mean having to put them in the trailer and go somewhere, even if it's just to go walk in the park or walk a gravel road or something, but I think it's important enough to do that, and it's interesting that with enough walking, 45 minutes or walking, 45 minutes or an hour walking in different scenery on the roads, you actually can do a fair bit of fitness work. It's not quite the same, but you can have a real good base that way. And so if you're, the days that you're lucky enough that you can ride in the ring, I don't do flat work every day. I'll do flat work one day, I'll trot poles another day, maybe do a little grid work, which is what we're going to talk about when I do the open seminar demonstration in the equine ring a little bit later, and do some gymnastics to keep the horses fresh and moving their feet. But I try not to do the two, two things. I try not to do the same thing two days in a row so that we can keep the horses fresh. And like I said, I think it's real important that at least every third day to get out of the ring and to just go walk on the road. Even if you just walk in the field in the snow, I know the snow balls up a little bit, but I think if you're smart about it, don't start going up and down steep hills. The horses are safe enough because it balls up in their feet when they're in the field and they're turned out. So as long as you're not trying to trot and canter and jump jumps with the balls of snow in their feet, I think they're perfectly safe. All right, from Lauren Sumner. Do you use the winter to explore different bidding and equipment for your horses? That's a really good question. Um, I do not. I find that, especially during the winter, I want to do what I call the homework. And so I work on the basics, both of myself, my position and my balance, and um, improving my flat work. And I work on the basics of the of the horses and so that is everything to me always comes back to the basics and I spend time working on the mechanics of those basics and part of that for me is putting all the horses back in plain snap. I'd make it as simple as possible so that we have to figure out you know the different ideas and incorporations of connection and aids and making things better and I have a pretty good idea 
unless it's a new horse of what I'm going to need to use during the season. And I find I'm more apt to try different things as the season gets started if I find when I get to the competition things are a little bit different. If the horse is stronger, you know, jumping and is like, oh, they're not like that at home. It only happens in competition. So you have to put them in that situation, whether it's going to a show or going to a, a competition that you can start to experiment. Because a lot of horses are very quiet, very straightforward at home, and then they get a little bit tense or they get a little bit up, and things are different at competition. And you can't replicate that at home. So in answer to Lauren's question, no, I don't. The only change that I make is I simplify. I come back to plain snaffles as much as I can, plain cabisons, and keep them as simple as possible. Okay. All right. Uh, so from Margaret Rizzo McKelvey, she says, not necessarily related to winter, but what are the top three things you look for in a freshly off-the-track thoroughbred as an event prospect? So that's also a very good question. I am, I am a big thoroughbred person. Most of the horses that I've had most of my big successes with have been off the track thoroughbreds. Um, I do, and I would say even if it's not an off the track thoroughbred, I look very much for the same thing. I look for good confirmation, and so uh, head and neck that's put on a good shoulder and a good wide chest. And uh, if anything, I would prefer to have a horse that's a little bit long in the back rather than a horse that's short in the back. And a good hind end that has good angles to it and is not too straight. So that would be the first thing I look at. The next thing I look at would be the balance. And I definitely have a preference for an uphill balance, a neck that comes up out of the shoulder. And you could relate this to the confirmation if you wanted to. Um, but uh, neck that comes up out of the shoulder and that the shoulder is as high if not higher than the top of the hoop behind. There have been very successful horses that are a little bit downhill in their balance, but I definitely have a preference for uphill horses. And I think that you find that they are more generally, as a rule, much more successful with their uphill balance. And then the last thing I look for, or the third thing I would say I look for in answer to Margaret's question, is good movement. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a very, a very fancy walk trot canter because most racehorses don't have a good trot. They, all they do is they walk and they canter. So what I'm looking for is a horse that has a good walk where the hind foot steps well up in front of the track of the front foot. So they've got a big reach with their hind leg. And I'm looking for a horse that's well balanced and has a good canter. I personally prefer horses that have a little bit more knee action, not horses that are what we call daisy cutters that move with very flat knees, because they are they tend to be more uh, more better balanced and better jumpers, especially when it comes to the cross country than we have to do. So the confirmation and the uphill balance and good gates, most importantly the walk and the canter would be the three things that I look for in the uh, foot track program. Okay. Yes, ma'am. So her question is, um, what about a horse who is not necessarily uphill but feels uphill? And that is great. I have, you know, I, that is, I have had very, horses very successful like that, that they're not necessarily built higher in front. And so what I do find is that if they feel like they come uphill, they are uphill, and, and they don't necessarily look that way, 
with most of the racehorses, once we put them into work and we start doing flat work, their shoulders, their scapula, and their withers are going to grow anyway. They're going to, because as you build the muscle, the scapula and the withers definitely get taller themselves. Well, I mean, I'm talking about young off-the-track thoroughbreds. You know, an eight or nine-year-old isn't. They might, they actually, they might show a little bit change at that point if they haven't been doing proper flat work. You know, if they've just been turned out or come out of the field or something. Because with the flat work, any horse is going to, the muscles are going to help lift the scapula and the withers. So, but especially in those young off-the-track thoroughbreds, they're definitely going to grow and grow taller with the work in those first year or so of putting them into work. Good question. All right. So from Ashley Beheller, I don't know if I'm saying her last name correctly, in 15 words or less, explain the term half-hall. <laughs> so that is like the ultimate question, the ultimate um, that uh, we always ask and you always are interested. Everybody has a different way of putting what a half-halt is, and I don't think any one explanation is right or right or more wrong, but I would say it's, using the contraction, so that's only one word, a rebalancing or preparatory aid. So that I mean that's what it is. That doesn't really explain, you know, how to do it. Right. But I don't think you can do that in oh, no, different no, words. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> also she would like to know what would be an exercise on flat, either ground poles, uh, dressage, uh, jumping or something else that has a similar effect on hind end development as hill work. Ah, that's a very good question. You know, I do a lot of pole work, just in general, even when I say pole work, I mean poles on the ground, with my horses, both on the flat and jumping, and I do that year-round. The wintertime, a lot more, especially because a lot of times the ring will be fairly frozen and you don't really want to jump on it. One thing that I do really like to utilize are raised ground poles, so especially thinking about if you put them raised on boxes, you put the boxes on the small side first and gradually make it bigger. And I like to do curves so that it's a canter exercise if you, so that it's, it's a curve of three or four rails and you put, start with them on the ground and put the outside rail on the box and then gradually put the inside rail on the box so that it's elevated. And this is more for the way I like to utilize it is the canter and so they're cantering on a curve. The inside boxes, if you do it, should be nine feet apart. The outside boxes should be 12 feet apart. So that it's on a curve and it's very regulated that way as far as distance, doing it both ways and riding through it, again, at the canter, just as rails on the ground, but ultimately getting it lifted. So it's like doing on a curve four little bounces. And that is an excellent way of developing high tech. Well, it goes through a stage of being uneven. So that, because I start with it on the ground, and then I raise only the outside age, eight, and then I ultimately raise the inside uh, rail to match so that it's level across. Um, I haven't personally done a lot with walking poles. I do always walk the horses through the trot poles first, just so they see them. 
but I generally do four or five trot poles. Sometimes I have to start with them like at nine feet because the horses don't quite understand it. They get a little claustrophobic and they might jump them initially. And so I keep them further apart and maybe even further apart until they relax about them and just go back and forth. But I ultimately add in and I always like to have at about four or five poles. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> you know, I'll do it, um, utilize it during the course of doing the flat work, okay? So I'll, you know, I'll warm up and do some work, go through the poles, then I'll go do some other work and come back to the poles. I don't just incessantly do them. It's a very good question. And the other thing that I'll do is I'll, a lot of times, um, go through them longitudinally so I'm not actually going through the poles. Good exercise of just working on straightness, which is one of the basics that we have to work on. And then, you know, with where our sport's going and we have to angle so many poles and things, I practice going through them on an angle so I'm not going absolutely straight. And you might have to start with just one pole, but then like doing a diagonal across the four or five poles so the horses really have to pay attention and notice where they're putting their feet and just trying to be imaginative that way. Really good question. Um, Kate has another question. Uh, when you need to rehab a horse from a tendon injury, do you have any exercises that you find helpful? The big thing coming back from tendon injuries, I think, is that you take your time. And so I stay away from exercises until the horses have you know, been cleared to that the, the tendon is healed. And, and it's not until, I don't start doing exercises per se until the horse is cleared the canter and maybe even ready to jump. Because I think the most important thing with coming back with injuries is that you take your time. You spend a lot of time just walking. You spend a lot of time just walking and then trotting and big circles and straight lines. I think the simpler the better. And then as the vet comes back and checks and says, okay, things are good, re-ultrasound, things are good, okay, now you can start the canter. Then when we start doing canter work, maybe I'll start to do smaller circles and do a little bit more in the way of flat work. Um, but even then, I wouldn't necessarily start doing poles until the vet ultrasounds and says, okay, now you're good to, good to jump. So again, a very good question. I think simpler is better coming back with injuries. Yes, ma'am. So her question is, she's got a horse that's 14 months back from a tendon injury, and so she's been cleared to jump, and she's starting to jump, and she's just jumping one fence and, and doing that, would you say once or twice a week? Yeah. Right. So to me, I think that's perfect. I would start to interplay with some trot poles and some canter poles, and the next step I would do is start doing some grid work. And again, I talked a little bit about it yesterday, I'm gonna talk more about it this afternoon, but doing some gymnastics first at the trot, and just trot into an X, one stride out over vertical. Do that a couple schools, at make it a trot in over an X, one stride to an oxer. Do that a couple schools, add a third fence, one stride away, and just start to build, just build it by building through grid work, one fence at a time. 
And in the meantime, you can always do poles on the ground, work with some raised canter poles. Um, that sort of thing would help. But I think just being very uh, logical about it, very almost mathematical about it, adding it very slowly is the most important. Carly uh, Davis, uh, what specific qualities do you look for in a horse that you're trying for the first time to ensure that it would be a good fit for an adult manager? Oh, very good question. So that is, there are some people that are just naturally gifted in picking out horses for adult amateurs. I don't necessarily consider myself one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, I've, I've tried to help and I give my, my two cents worth for what it is but I'm not one of those people who is great at picking out the ultimate adult amateur horse. However, having said that, I think the number one thing that you have to look for is a good brain. A horse that's quiet by nature, a horse that if somebody has a job and they have to travel and be gone for three days, they can be gone, gone for three days, maybe gone for five days, and come back and get on the horse and not be worried about getting bucked off or spun off or spooked off or anything like that. That is number one priority to me. The second priority, I would say, is that size-wise the horse fits the rider. That uh, you're not finding for a 5-2 lady a 17-2 hand horse, all right? I think the rider, the horse needs to fit the rider, rider needs to fit the horse. And I think that that is sometimes overlooked and not taken into account when you're looking especially for an adult amateur rider. And then the third thing I would say that I look for, depending on the situation, is that generally speaking, I'm looking for a horse who has more mileage than what the rider does, especially in this situation. If it's a very talented adult amateur and they're confident and they want it and they're ready to bring up a young horse, great. But generally speaking, when I'm looking, I'm looking for a horse who's done a little bit more than the rider and there can be a mutual education. All right, from Jacqueline Burke, can you walk us through a typical week of work, including fitness days and durations or sets for a training level course? Uh, absolutely. So I'm going to go under the assumption that, just to keep it simple, the horses have Sunday off, unless it's a competition weekend. My horses work six days a week, and so I'm just going to say, for whatever reason, Sunday's their day off. So Monday, the day after a day off, they go and do fitness work. And by that, I mean they go walk and trot hills. And generally speaking, a training level horse should be doing about 30 minutes, ultimately, when they're competing, of trotting. It doesn't have to be 30 minutes straight. It can be 310s or 215s or 6.5s. But they need to be, they actually do it better if you do it in breaks. They, you know, because they have a couple minutes to, to come back and get their breath and stuff. So I think they get more out of it, especially mentally. So Monday is spent fitness work that way. Tuesday is a flat work day where I work in, on the dressage. Wednesday would be a jump day. And they do two fitness works a week, two dressage works a week, and two jump schools a week. So, Monday would be a fitness day, Tuesday would be a flat work day, Wednesday would be a jump day, maybe I would do some grid work or exercises like that on Wednesday. Thursday, we're back to fitness, and it might, depending on the horse, if they need to do a little bit more in the way of some canter work, like some of the heavier horses need to do some canter work that day, as well as the trot work on the hills for fitness. Most thoroughbreds don't need to do a lot of canter work in their jump schools, the canter for the training level, the jump schools that they do, because on Friday, 
we're going to do our, where are we up to? Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we're going to do another jump school. And in the Saturday school, I do uh, a lot of, uh, of coursework. So they can do a lot of cantering. Most thoroughbreds, I find, that's plenty of fitness for a training level horse. Some of the heavier horses, the half-bred horses, might have to have some cannon work in there on the, the, the days that they're going out on the hills and doing the fitness work. But basically, two of each day, each week. So. That's great. Uh, question for from Sherry Chauvin. Uh, that one's her name, right? In your career. What horse, either yours or a student's, surprised you the most or made you the most proud, and why? Uh, that's wonderful. Um, so the first horse that comes to mind is when I was out just after I left Moose's, and I had a student by the name of Wendy Fletcher, who had a nice big half-bred horse that was a big gray horse and just a really good guy. Um, I can't remember if he ultimately went advanced, but he did go intermediate, and I didn't see that coming. He just was a really good guy, he was quiet, he was a good mover and a good jumper. Wasn't completely fast, wasn't, you know, um, you know staggeringly beautiful or beautiful mover, just very correct. And he did his training levels and was good, so we moved up to prelim. Did his prelims and was good. We moved him up to intermediate, and I never saw that in that horse. And just the more you asked of him, the more he gave. And he never looked like he was going to keep going further up the levels, but he did. And it's a little bit like the jumpers, you know, Chaco Wu is the number one uh, show jumping stallion, breeding stallion in the world right now. And that's a lot of his young horses, and he was very much the same. I had the privilege of getting him to jump before he died at Lanakin. And he always just jumped an inch or two above the jumps, but he didn't touch them. And every time, having talked to Paul about that, every time they moved him up, he just gave a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And uh, that, that would be the horse that I would say I'm most impressed by. He just kept putting out and was as consistent and tried as hard. And this was a young rider who's moving up the levels and learning the ropes herself. And they made a great pair. Got a question? Ah, yes, ma'am. My question is sort of on the opposite. So I have a horse that I have been in the novice level, but he's also a fox hunter. He also will go out to a hunter show here or there. He might also go to a jumper show, and I trail around. And I need the advice of how much vacation to give this horse. Because he's in work like six days a week, 365 days a year, and I'm, I'm learning that it's almost going to be weather, you know, but right. he lives out 24. So that, that's wonderful. It sounds like an absolutely wonderful horse who just does a little bit of everything. He's in work for six days a week. Um, he goes 365 days a year. He does a little bit of everything. He events, he show jumps, he does some hunters, he does um, fox, hunting. fox hunting, which is the best thing for the young <laughs> event horse or an older event horse even. The first thing I'm going to ask is how old is he? So he's 10, so that's a good age. The reason I ask that is that way if what we have found over the years is that as horses get older, you know, when they start getting 12, 13, 14, they're better off staying in a certain amount of work year-round and not getting time off. That, especially as they get older, 
it gets harder to get them fit again. If you give them, you know, we used to always give the horses two months off or three months off and pull their shoes in the winter. Now with the schedules, we don't do that anymore because we've got competitions year round. I don't think that any horse can go compete, not what your horse is doing, but compete eventing year round. I think they all need a break. But more of what I've started doing is I pick like a quiet time, like around Thanksgiving or around Christmas, and I just know that the week of Thanksgiving, the week of Christmas, my horse is gonna have the week off, because it's a big family time for us, and I do that. And that's how I pick and choose their time off. I don't say um, anymore, I don't say, okay, my horse is having a month off now, unless there's a reason they need a month off. And that's how I pick and choose the time off. That's a great question. And so I would think, you know, it varies a little bit depending on the time of year and what he's doing, but if there's going to be, you know, a wedding that you're going to or you know you're going to have a lot of family for Christmas or for Thanksgiving, that's how I would choose his time off. And let him have a week here and there, you know, and that way his fitness really never wanes. And um, you kind of keep just keep taking over with him. And then if he starts to get body sore or something and you realize, I need to back off a little bit, you can do that. But I think that's how I would map it out and plan it out accordingly to wonderful question, really good question. Right. All right, we have, uh, it's a two-person question. It's uh, Natalie Paulus and Katie White. What do you do to keep things interesting when stuck in the indoor all the time? Things uh, to keep both horse and rider from being bored, uh, specific dressage and jumping exercises uh, used that will also help with fitness heading into spring. And also, how often do you recommend flatting uh, poles and jumping into our routines when we are stuck in a ring most of the time? Uh, very good question. I think that ties into a little bit, a couple of questions that we've already answered. And there again, with those people, with what they have, I would try to vary it up day to day to day and vary it up like we talked about in our fitness schedule. So the horses always have one day off then maybe the first day, I don't normally do flat work the first day after a day off because a lot of horses I find are kind of fresh and it gets a little bit difficult to get them to focus and get some quality work out of them. So that's why I do either a fitness day or a half day the day after a day off. So in that case, I would maybe go out and just go walk on the gravel road or just get out of the ring no matter what you have to do. Go walk across the field in the snow. Go do something outside of the ring. And then the next day, I would do some flat work, maybe or maybe not utilize poles, but I do, I do in the wintertime, I utilize poles in almost every day that I do flat work in some way. And then the next day, do jumping and maybe do a grid, and it doesn't have to be a very long, maybe a 20-minute jump school, and do some grid work or some gymnastics, then get out of the ring again. And if you have to just go walk in the snow or go walk down the road, do that. Just get the horse out of the ring for both the horse and the rider. And then the next day is another flat day. And, you know, again, utilize some poles, work on some different objectives, work on some different things that you're playing on, unless you need to make better what you did back on Tuesday. And then the next day is going to be another jump school. And so maybe put some jumps together, utilize some different things like that, and don't, you know, stay away from the grid work and do a lot of canter work or cantering courses and putting fences together and working on straightness and turns and such. The other thing that I do a lot in the wintertime is I spend a lot of time trotting fences. And I think a lot of people have gotten away from that. But to me, that's one of the basics that you need to do. And so in, I might do a lot of trot fences in the grid work, 
or I might, on the day that I do coursework, do a course of trotting fences. So being imaginative like that, but I think that trotting fences is very important and very useful, and it's not something that you need to do completely every school you do, but it's a tool that I think is misunderstood. All right, uh, this question is from Joe. Uh, what is your opinion on when is the appropriate time to move up the levels in vetting? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> really good question. Um, and I think, again, if you ask five different riders, you can get five different answers. And not any one is more correct than the other. But I think, number one, the level that you're competing needs to be getting boring. And so you need to be walking around the courses and saying, I'm confident, I can do this. Okay, I'm getting a little bored. You know, I'm seeing the same question weekend after weekend or show after show after show. The other thing that you need to be doing to, in my book is you don't have to be winning the dressage, but you need to be being competitive on the flat. You know, you need to be not, like I said, winning every time, but you need to be able to hold your own after the flat work. You need to be able to show jump a clear round at that level. And your horse is going to tip a rail and have a rail from time to time, but that's a whole different story. That, to me, that's less important. That doesn't matter. You've got to be able to safely stay in balance and jump around that show jump course, being accurate in your eye and with your distances and things like that before you're going to want to move up. And then finally, with the cross country, you've got to be jumping around here. Um, you know, you've got to, it's the lower levels you should be making the time. If you're going around the novice level and you're still having 10 and 15 time penalties, you're not ready to move up because you're going too slowly. You need to learn to carry a little bit more pace and get comfortable with that because you have to carry more pace as you move up the levels. And so those would be the big things that I would say. You've got to be, you've got to be accurate in, in, in doing well on the flat. You've got to be able to jump a clear show jumping round minus a little mishap, and you've got to be able to go cross country clear. And again, you might have the odd stop or the odd run out cross country. That's a different thing, and that's going to happen. That's part of the sport, and that's irrelevant to me. But you've got to be able to produce the results. And I don't mean winning results. I mean successful results for you as an individual and be bored and ready to run. All right. I've got a question first. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> I don't think it's confusing at all. No, not a bit. So her question is, if she's got, for instance, a horse that's going novice level, but she wants to go beginner novice from time to time, um, is that a problem? And I would say not at all. I think the one thing you have to be sure of when you move down a level is that the horses still jump respectfully of the jumps and don't get sloppy and, you know, you just don't start getting a little bit careless and just running and making silly mistakes. But with a lot of, especially the young horses, will do a couple of novices and then move back to beginner novice for their confidence. And maybe do a few novice, I mean a few trainings and then let them throw in a novice for their confidence. Especially for the ones who are a little bit, you know, a little bit fragile mentally or not quite as as, as strong a personality and not quite as confident in themselves. We utilize that a lot. online, but they are here. They're a little shy. They don't want to do it uh, in person. But uh, So it's Caroline and Catherine. 
they want to know what are some good jumping exercises to do in a small rink. Good jumping exercise in a small rink. I can tell immediately who it is because y'all are so red. <laughs> Looks like you've been out in the sun. Very, very good question. Um, I like to do the exercise that I talked with the raised rails, and you might just do three, but do them as canter rails and canter rails on a turn for one. I like to do a lot of trot fences. You can set up, you know, three or four fences and do a little trot course and challenge yourself that way and do a little coursework that way. Usually I find even in smaller rinks, you can set up a small grid. It might even just be two fences, but you can do a trot in canter out exercise. And then the final thing I would say that is very productive, very useful, is maybe just jumping a single fence on a, on a circle. And if it's a small enough arena that you can only put one fence in, that's fine. Because one of the things that we have to work on, both for the riders and the horses, is that they are rideable on the landing side of the jump as they are coming to the jump. And that's what that circle exercise really helps benefit from. Very good question. Got another right here? Yes, ma'am. So her question is, um, is in, in a situation where you've got multiple riders competing the same horse at different levels. And I think really I would not have a problem at all with that, depending on the horse. If they've got a good brain, and you know, and it sounds like it sounds like this horse probably does, that they, you know, they recognize a little bit. It's amazing how much they do recognize the rider and the, the, you know, the partnership on top of them. And you know, I've seen some of them. The rider starts to tip off to the right. The horse moves over to the right to get underneath them. You know, those kinds are fantastic. It sounds like they don't have to be that special, but if they have the right brain and you know, the, the riders have the partnership with the horse, I don't think that's a problem whatsoever. Not a bit. Yes, ma'am. Uh, -huh. uh very good question. So she said with the frigid ride times, you know, and we've got some coming in again, what is the best way to be productive in a short amount of time? And that's a really good question, you know, because the horses have to have a certain amount of time to warm up and you can't just get on and go straight to work. So I would say when you're walking, and we always walk for 10 or 15 minutes before you pick up a trot, work them in the walk. You know, they don't have to come out and go boom on the bit at the walk, but you can certainly work on the connection, work on stretching at the walk, work on moving sideways at the walk, um, because I think when it does get really cold, you don't want to work them too hard, get them sweaty, you don't want to get them breathing too hard, because as a runner, I know when I run in the cold, I get a sore throat, it hurts. And so I think the horses must go through the same thing. So it is interesting how much you can get done at the walk. And so I would say, as you're walking around and warming up, you know, give them a couple minutes, but then start to gradually work them and connect them, and then work a few minutes at the trot at the canter, come back to walk and work them at the walk. Go back to trot or canter for a few minutes and come back to work at the walk. I think that it's very easily forgotten how much we can accomplish, and most of us don't practice, don't work on the walk enough. But I think that that's a very important thing that we need to do, because if you can't do a shoulder at the walk, you're not going to be able to do it at the trot. So that would be a big part of it, I would say. 
And uh, actually, back to Caroline and Catherine, they had another question. All right. Um, do you have any advice for riders who are just starting out to event? Ah, another very good question. Um, if just starting eventing, um, I think to me it's just almost just like starting out in any of the equestrian avenues and any equestrian sports, find a good person to train with. Um, have a good person on the ground who can talk you through problems, who can help you, and not, you know, not a dressage person, just a dressage person, or just a show jump person. Initially, you know, find some good event person that you, that has a good background as far as their education and their teaching. They don't have to be an upper level rider per se, but somebody who is a good teacher, who you've heard people talk about as a good teacher, and defer to them, and make sure you utilize them, even if you don't have a horse already, in finding the right horse. And being able to walk you through the dressage test and walking the cross country course with you and being able to tell you now here's where you got to slow down, here's where you need to come back to trot through the bad footing sort of thing. And they also need to be able to walk you around the show jump course and be able to, you know, walk lines and walk numbers with you and, and talk to you about sitting up more in your position and stuff. Because I don't think it's realistic, especially when you're first starting out, to have somebody helping you on the flat, somebody helping you in the show jumping, and somebody helping you in the cross country. Uh, financially, this is not realistic. So find a good person who has a little bit been there, done that, but more importantly has a good reputation as far as their education and their teaching, and take, utilize that person. That's my number one thing that I need to see more of, I want to see people do more of, is get good help. Especially when you're sorry. Does anyone have any questions? Okay, so we got a couple. Okay. When I was younger, I did a lot of bareback work. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, and seriously, when I was younger, I did do a lot of bareback work, um, especially for the kids and. You know, probably for us, we probably should do some more bareback work. Because when I first started out, I didn't even have a, a bridle, of course. I went out in the halter and lead chains and rode bareback. Walk, trot, canter, and that's how I taught myself to jump and stuff like that. And that's the sort of thing I don't see enough of anymore. Everything is very, you know, uh, very mechanically organized. And, you know, a large part of it is we don't have the open areas to ride in a lot of places like we used to growing up. Now, having said that, as I've gotten older, I've kind of shy away from riding bareback, but I do a lot of work without stirrups. Not a lot of work, but I do work without stirrups. And I have, in situations, had the kids get on bareback and make them go bareback and, you know, do it very carefully and under controlled circumstances unless they're really confident at it. But I think that's a wonderful idea. And, you know, for those of us who are a little bit older and a little bit weary of going bareback, um, maybe just going without stirrups. question is, you know, about the cross-country riding and some reading that she's done, they talk about you can't just 
train cross country in the ring. You got to get out and go cross country. And I absolutely agree with that. I think that's real important because I think it's important that, you know, especially if you're thinking about moving up levels, you got to get comfortable going faster and going faster over jumps and doing it safely. And you can't do that in a ring. You got to get out. And more and more, we have great schooling facilities all over the place that you can go to and utilize that. So I do think I completely agree with that idea. So part of what she's asking is how often do you do that? And with my young horses, you know, um, it's for me, I think it's a little bit different at the farm where I've been in the past where I have to put the horses on the trailer every time we go cross country. And that's a, that's a big part of the day. So the young horses don't go schooling at probably as much as they should. You know, I try to get them out once every other week or once every week. But ideally, I would have a schooling facility on my farm, which is happening when I get back from Florida. I'm moving to a new farm. But um, ideally, with the young horses, they'd be going cross country once a week or at least once every other week. Yes, the horse up to training level. I think once they get going training level successfully, and then especially the older horses, you know, we'll from the, at the beginning of the season, we'll go out and school two or three times before the first competition. And then what I like to do is three or four days out before each competition, even the older horses, they go jump into the water, they go jump some skinnies, they go jump a ditch, and that might be the only schooling they do in between uh, courses in between competitions, but you know, even with the training level horse, the freelance horse, they do the same thing. A handful of days, three or four days out before it, they always go school a little bit of everything, just as a reminder, and that's probably the only schooling once the season starts that they do. That's, I mean, he had a really good question, because we're talking about how, number one, you've got a group of people who need to do it, and, you know, to get them all together on the same day and get a trailer load of horses and riders out to go schooling is hard coordinating the people, and it gets expensive really quickly. So what I have done, both at the farm where I have here, where I have been at, and uh, I have utilized is I did go out and buy a few cross-country fences with portables and put them out in the field. I did put a couple of fences in the fence line so you have to jump in and out of the ring. And it's a little bit of an expense for us as a trainer, but I found it well worth it, you know, especially for the young horses. And they don't have to be big fences. They're fences that can be jumped both ways and something going in and out of the ring, something out in the field, something very soft, very round, nothing tricky, so that I can, even if I've got a group lesson, one at a time, they go out and do that little loop and then come back in, sort of thing. Absolutely. You know, I do, again, depending on the rider, but um, and where they're at in their riding, as far as education and all. So her question is, you know, what a lot of times what we do is we go out to mark distances so that riders can start to 
get a feel for how fast, when you're going training level, you're going 450 meters a minute, how fast is that? You know, with the show jumping that is 350 meters a minute, how fast is that? So the way that we teach and remind ourselves and um, teach it to our riders is we go out and mark 350 meters and say, okay, pick up your canter as you pass these cones and go what you think is 350 meters a minute and then I time them as they go through the next set of cones. And if I don't want to do a full minute, I'll do a half a minute and I'll cut 350 in half. And then, so I time them and I tell them what the time is and that's how they, okay, you got to do it faster, you were too slow or you went too fast. And so the, that's what we're talking about as far as um, working on those distances and times and distances. And so I start that, you know, especially with the people who want to be a little bit serious and want to be competitive, I started as early as going to get an office, you know, and, and there's, no, there's no time too early about that if they're competing. And I think that the more they do that, the more um, ingrained it gets and it starts to hopefully become more natural to them. And I think it's a real important idea is just how fast it is for them. I don't think, if it's somebody who wants to compete, I don't think you can get started too early with that. That's a wonderful tool. Yes, ma'am. Uh, It, it absolutely is true. Um, funny enough, when you talked a little bit about it, I talked a little bit about it on the podcast, because we all go through nerves. Everybody at every level, even the upper level riders, we all get nervous. And, you know, it's a little bit different for me because now it's been seven or eight years since I've had an advanced horse. And so I've got a horse that's going prelim that's about to move up to intermediate. And those first couple of intermediate runs, I'm going to be really nervous because I want to do a good job and I don't want to get hurt, I don't want the horse to get hurt. And I think especially as we get older and, you know, we recognize the ability to get hurt and that that happens, that comes into play a lot more than when you're young and think you're completely invincible and nothing's going to happen to you, that always happens to somebody else. And so it's, everybody goes through it. And I think that everybody, you have to know yourself well enough to know what you need to do to deal with your nerves. And for me, I need time alone so that I can focus, and I need time alone so I can shine my boots. And that's what I, I seriously do. Everybody can tell how nervous I am because I'll be off shining my boots, and that's what I do when I get nervous. But I need alone time, I don't need to be visiting, I don't need to be, you know, if it's, you know, sometimes we have students at the events, and so we have to deal with them too, and that's another way to help with the nerves, because you've got to be busy, and that keeps you from getting too you know, whatever about one thing exactly in your own brain. But I think it is finding what works for you individually, how to deal with your, your nerves. Um, for some people, I have to say, just remember to keep breathing. And it's funny because they start focus on keeping breathing and they forget that they're nervous. For some people, a lot of times like myself, before I get on the horse is the hardest time. Once I get on the horse, whew, I feel a lot better once I get on the horse and get going. And I think, you know, that's a big, big thing for a lot of people too. So I think it's figuring out, working through your nerves and personally what, you know, I know a lot of people 
like at Kentucky, and they want to go sit in the truck and they want to listen to music and listen to specific types of music and stuff. And that's how they get ready, especially for cross country. So I think it depends on the person, but I think that's part of it is figuring out what you need to do. You know, maybe you need to be able to just go walk a course. Uh, liquid, <laughs> we call it liquid courage. I agree. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> I know people who do that seriously, <laughs> but um, I think it's working. You know, working through it, kind of trying what works for you. You know, a large, a lot of times, like when I was going to Kentucky, I would. Um, way I wanted, yes I wanted to be alone, but I wanted to walk the course one more time, and it was very, it would take a breath and make me feel a lot better if I'd walk it with my partner Peter. And we didn't talk, we just walked the course. And it was just nice having somebody walking with me and they weren't asking questions and they weren't saying, oh God, that's really big. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just going out and walking the course with somebody, maybe you want to walk it by yourself. But I think it's knowing yourself and figuring that out yourself. Everybody's a little bit different. But I think you've got to find something, especially in the lead up time, that activates your brain. It keeps your brain, fun or not functioning, but thinking. And whether it's on the competition or on something, politics or something not horsey, that's going to keep you more relaxed. Um, I think it depends on your personality. Very good question. Really shiny boots. But you know, that's what I said on the podcast, because I do. I shine them and shine them and shine them, and they never get that shiny. <laughs> <laughs> he needs some help with how to actually shine his boots. Yeah, yes. <laughs> we'll take one more question. Um, yes, ma'am. How important do you feel um, the fitness of the rider is? So outside of riding. Very, um, very excellent question. And what do you notice what happens to you when you're not? Uh -huh. What's yep. the difference for you when you're not running? That so the um, her question is how important uh, how important is fitness of the rider and it is extremely important. You cannot afford, especially in our sport, to be out there and be getting tired at the end of the cross country course. And so again, I think in large part it depends on your age because when you're younger and you're a little bit more active, maybe doing other sports or you know riding more horses or whatever, the fitness comes a little bit more easily and you don't have to focus on it. I definitely have noticed as I get older, I've got to do something. Especially if I do a lot of teaching and only ride a couple of horses a day, that's not enough. So, you know, so I do do yoga. Um, I don't run as much as I used to. I should be running more. Um, I'm lucky enough that, depending on what I have in the barn, I can have five or six horses to ride during a day and that's very helpful. But again, I think it is dependent on the person, what they have access to, you know, whether it's swimming, whether it is doing a yoga or Pilates class a couple times a week, whether it is going out and running, but I think you have to find something because I think it's really, really important. Super question. So. It's really important. Thank you. All right. Well, that is it. <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to check out Stephen at 2 o'clock at the Equine Arena. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. What, what are you going to go over? Um, we're going to be doing more grid work, but okay. grid work exercises related to something that we would do during the winter time. Awesome. So, All right. thank you guys for coming. Thank you guys yeah, thank for your you. help. Thank you. Appreciate it.